and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Bent Tree. Uh, for those of you that don't recognize me, it's me. It's your pastor right here in the flesh. I know that uh, I look like I'm coming right out of a ZZ Top uh, video, sharp-dressed man, but... So I'm glad that, uh, that you're here today and you're going, why are you wearing a suit? Well, a very good friend of mine, longtime member of Bentry, passed away a week and a half ago, uh, Carol McKinney. And his service is going to be at 2 p.m. right here in this room. So I would love for you to come back as we worship together and sing. A family is from here, just from all over the country here. And so uh, we're going to miss Carol. Amen. Uh, and so, Carol, I'm wearing a suit for you, buddy. Uh, let's get excited uh, for what we're doing. Who brought their Bible today? Who brought their Bible? Let's see those things. Hold them up. Good job. I love that. I love it when you bring your Bible, when you follow along. Uh, One of the best sounds that a pastor hears when he's preaching is the sound of yes and amen, that I agree, and, and the wrestling of pages as you turn in your Bibles to the passage that we go to. So now if you don't have a Bible, get an ESV Bible if you're going to buy one, or if we can help you with that, uh, I preach from that ESV. Uh, The New King James is a good one. They call it the NKJV or the CSB or the NIV or the NASB, but get one ASAP. You see what I did with all that. So in all seriousness, this is what we do here. It is the main thing we do here. Uh, We've given God our worship. Uh, Our team has led us. We've prayed. We've given our tithe. And now we want to hear from God. Amen? And, And now this is what we do. We preach from this. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Now you can certainly follow along on the Bible app. It has all the notes as well, but this is just personal. I, I, so maybe humor and old pastor. I love it when you bring your Bible and when I see you taking notes in your Bible and a notepad too. Uh, underline stuff, star it. Uh, BB kind of makes fun of me. She sees my Bible sometimes and it, sometimes it'd just be easier to underline the parts I don't like because it's all underlined. But, uh, make sure you write that in there. And yes, you heard me correctly, underline right in your Bible there. So if you would, if you're able, stand with me and uh, we're going to read our passage for today. And then just stay standing. We'll pray then as we get into our time of uh, preaching. John chapter 6, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to, the, went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me 
not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, this, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our father ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whomever, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance for us to come together as a body of Christ, to read your words, to expound on them, to let them sink into our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, that's what we ask. May your Holy Spirit just open our hearts, open our minds, show us exactly what you want us to know today. It's in Jesus' precious name we all prayed and said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Let's get our bearings. And if you're a Winnie the Pooh fan, let's get our tiggerings too. Uh, this is a long chapter for... The New Testament, 71 verses overall. This is a long chapter, but we're taking our time, working our way through this chapter verse by verse, just like all the others. But here's the deal. I don't want us to miss the major theme of this passage, this whole chapter. It's why the Apostle John writes like he does in this gospel. He portrays Jesus through seven major signs, or we would say miracles, where the other three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they focus on tons of other miracles, don't they? They're telling a deep story, but John is telling a deep story in another way. Remember, the sign isn't the thing. The sign points to the thing, and that is Jesus as the Son of God. These signs are pointing to different aspects of who Jesus really is. Now John 6 is one long chapter because it's covering this thing and John wants to make sure we unpack it. Although the chapter has these kind of little vignettes, these little smaller stories that we've been studying in our weeks leading up to this and for the weeks before that we saw the feeding of the 5,000 thousand, five thousand men with their women and children there. All these little parts we've studied go together to form this one part. And for however many weeks it takes us to get to the end of chapter six, we'll be pointing to this theme of Jesus calling himself the bread of life. 
The deep thing is not just that he says he's the bread of life, but that what that means to his followers and who claim to follow him and those that don't. We'll get to that more in just a few weeks, uh, but this week we're really going to look and see what it means. I'm excited because this half of chapter 6 gets into some real meat of Jesus' preaching here. And just a warning, this half of chapter 6 may mess you up may mess up your view of Jesus a bit. That's why I want you to really keep your Bible close. Check with me every step of the way to see those words in your Bible. And because your Bible is the final authority, not me, not your grandfather, not even your own personal experience, like what you have been taught, what you may have understood about Jesus in the past. I'm just saying the Holy Spirit may destroy your safe little box you've built for Jesus to stay inside. May give you a new perspective and a more solid picture of the real Jesus. Now, this is a good thing. The truth is always a good thing. Like Jesus says in a couple of chapters, the truth will set you free, right? That's what he says. But when we, but what you thought was a real picture of Jesus And Jesus says, no, it's different than what you thought. It may shake you up a little bit. If you'll remember back to verse 1 of chapter 6, it begins with the words, after this. Chapter 5 started off with the same words. Chapter 7, same words. In other words, it's these pictures, chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now remember, the events in chapter 5, it had been a full year before chapter 6 occurs. Between 5 and 6, Jesus had essentially gone on tour to all the towns in Israel, sending his disciples out two by two, kind of an advanced team, that he would go and perform miracles. He would preach in all these places. And because of this tour of Jesus had he had done with his disciples, this massive crowd is following him wherever he goes. John 6 opens with Jesus taking his disciples for a little Rest and relaxation after that. But the crowd finds him. They always find him here on to the end of his life. After he preaches to the crowd, that's when he does this amazing sign of feeding the twenty to 25,000 with only five loaves and two fish from a little boy's lunch. The crowd is so stuffed, we know that because there's 12 baskets left over. They're like, oh, I can't eat anymore. And when this Jewish crowd sees this miracle performed by Jesus, they go, this took power. Let's make him our king. He could probably throw the Romans out. But Jesus simply slips away before they try to make him king by force. Now, meanwhile, he had told the disciples to go get in the boat, travel back to their adopted hometown of Capernaum on the west side, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then last week, we studied this great part of the story of how the disciples ran into this this horrible storm and they're rowing for hours against the storm. And then Jesus simply comes (whistles) walking by them on the water. And they say, get in our boat. If you missed that, go back and listen. And if you just to remind you the part of Jesus walking on the water, that's incredible, right? We tend to focus on that. But just as incredible, I think, was this tiny little mention of when he gets in the boat and then he's suddenly on the other side of the lake. Boom! Talk about freaky. 
But where we begin today is right here. Nothing else is said about that miracle. Let's pick up in verse 22. Look there in your lap or here up on the screen. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, apparently, the crowd sleeps right there where they had eaten, and in the morning they camp out, the boat's gone, they had seen it leave, and Jesus had not been on the boat. They look for Jesus, apparently. This crowd doesn't know about Jesus walking on the water. So it's a little mystery for the crowd. So we read in verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So we're not sure what this means here. I'll give you some ideas. By the way, Tiberias is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It was another town like Capernaum on the coast. Not to overthink this, but the crowd sees the boat the disciples were in. They see it leave. They see it row away. Jesus is clearly not in it. Then apparently there are those other boats that had come from the west side now to the east side. And now it may have been the storm that had blown these other boats there. We're just simply not told. So that part must not be important for us. Or I guess you could say these people that were in these boats, they had heard maybe Jesus preaching and that they were going to come and try to find him there too. That could be a possibility. The point is that there are all these other boats now that had not been there the night before. You with me? So we read in verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, plural, and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. There must have been a bunch of boats And we're not told how many, but a bunch of boats to hold a lot of people. And I'm assuming that some people got in the boat, and I'm assuming some just simply walked around the edge of the lake. A lot longer hike along there. It's a big crowd looking for Jesus is the point. Remember, it's a big lake. We call it a sea, but it's really not a sea. It's fresh water. Now, for comparison, for you guys in the Loveland area, Lake Loveland is 475 acres. That's when it literally has water in it, which is not always. um, The Sea of Galilee is 41,000 acres. So in other words, picture Lake Loveland about 86 times the size. You picturing that? Now, let me ask you a question. Why did the big crowd go looking for Jesus? They're hungry. It's breakfast time. He he had fed them the night before this wonderful feast, but they're hungry again. Keep that question in your mind. Why is the crowd looking for Jesus? And the last time they saw this miraculous meeting of their physical needs, it led them to seek to make him king and then do it by force. So presumably, they still want that too. So they head to Capernaum. We read in verse 25, when they found him, Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now look at that question. Why are they asking that question? Because something is not right in the time continuum there. 
what they observed the night before where he was. They got there. They know the disciples left without him. Remember, they don't know about Jesus walking on the water. So they're like, how did you get here? The crowd simply saw his disciples get in the boat without Jesus and leave. And now he's on the other side of the lake. Those people had probably just gotten there by boat. So they're like, something doesn't line up here with how you got here. But instead of answering the question, Jesus jumps right into the big point of the chapter. Look what he says, verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus does something here that's very, well, Jesus liked to do. He cuts through meaningless questions, doesn't he? And he gets right at a much deeper issue, just as he did in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And what is this deeper meaning here? This crowd's sinful motives for following him. You go, sinful motives? They just want something to eat. Now, watch what Jesus is going to do from this point all the way through the rest of chapter 6. He's going to talk about real followers and fake followers. Now, if you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. And if you're not taking notes, go ahead and write this down. Here it is. Jesus begins to separate the true followers from the fake followers. This is what you're about to see here. Jesus begins to separate the true followers from the fake followers. Now, what do the fake followers and the true followers have in common? They're both followers of Jesus. They look exactly the same, don't they? They're all followers of Jesus. Just some are real, some are fake. But what we are about to see here is Jesus do in his teaching is to help the real followers know that they're real and the fake followers know that they're fake. And at the same time, he's going to get most of these people that are fake followers They're simply at the end of the day just simply going, I can't follow a guy like this. He's going to call them out. On the surface, it seems to be counterintuitive, doesn't it? It seems like it, but it's not. And the way he's going to get the real followers to follow him, the fake followers to not follow him, is this. Jesus raises the stakes by his demand of how true followers must follow. Jesus raises the stakes by his demand of how true followers must follow. Now hang with me here. This may hurt a little bit as we go through the end of the chapter. Because listen how Jesus addresses the big crowd. Look at verse 26 once again. See if you can see this. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What we saw earlier is that Jesus cuts through the meaningless question. Now, they don't think it's meaningless. He says it's just meaningless. And Jesus gets to a much deeper issue, and that is their sin. That's their real issue. Now, what's their sin? The false followers only what want what Jesus can provide for them. They don't want Jesus himself. 
But the deeper issue even here is not just what they want, but what they don't want, which is Jesus. Now let's look at verse 27 because Jesus begins to preach some truth to these false followers when he says in the first part of verse 27, he says, do not work for the food that perishes. Now we know later in this chapter that he's going to call himself the bread of life, don't we? So we know what he's getting at, but let's play for a moment like we don't know it all. We don't know what he's talking about. Just take him at his word, answer the question, what is the bread that perishes? Well, bread for one, bread goes bad rather quickly. Uh, I was cleaning the kitchen the other day and, and I had let a little half loaf of French bread fall behind uh, the regular bread so you couldn't see it sometime before Thanksgiving. And, <laughs> and now it was, it was green and, and it had more of a beard than I do. And so I, I threw that away, but bread goes bad, doesn't it? The night before Jesus had made this feast for them, but now they're hungry again. But could Jesus be talking about something deeper? Could he be talking about something deeper than bread? Well, you bet he is. So what is he talking about? Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus is bringing out some deep truth right here. And this is what I'm talking about may hurt us a little bit. When Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, he's saying this. Don't waste your life pursuing what doesn't truly satisfy you here or for eternity. Don't waste your life pursuing what doesn't truly satisfy you here or for eternity. I'll give you a minute to write down. That's a lot. Now, first thing we see, Jesus is saying, look, your, your life, it can be wasted. That's a slap in the face, isn't it? Apparently, these people are wasting their lives. Let's think. Jesus is using food here as this metaphor, right? For satisfaction in life. Something that fills that need of hunger. It's a metaphor. But not just satisfaction. Because even the, the word there really doesn't get at the real issue. Jesus is getting at one of those questions that if it hasn't bugged you now. Is it, if it hasn't bugged you yet, it will. And that is, does my life count? Or does what I'm doing really mean something in the wider scope of the world and in my life. There's a fear there, isn't there? Like the business guy that spends his whole life kind of climbing the corporate ladder. He gives it his all, staying late, working weekends. He climbs that ladder. And over the years, he finds all he wants with, with wealth and power. But he loses his family. And he realizes at the end of his life, as he's at the top of his ladder, there's no satisfaction. It's like this ladder he's been climbing, he has been leaning against the wrong thing. He's made it to the top and there's no satisfaction. That's the bread that perishes right there that Jesus is talking about. You, you listening? Understand that although I just used a business guy that climbs the corporate ladder as an example, that's an easy one. The same is true 
for any walk of life in any profession, anything that you do or no profession. If you try to seek satisfaction that only can be had in Christ Jesus by following him, the best mother in the world, the best father, being a business owner, a romance, oh, just romance. It's the perfect one. Finding the perfect spouse, having the perfect house, and it's always clean. Being wealthy or a life that seeks to live out every experience on earth. Skydiving, thrills, checking off bucket list, right? None of that stuff in and of itself are bad things, are they? They're not bad things. But if we're using any of those created things or experiences to try to fill this need, it won't work. Jesus is saying, don't work for that kind of life because it won't last. It won't fulfill you in the end. It won't give you the satisfaction. Instead, Jesus says in the second half of verse 27, he says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the son of man, which the son of man will give to you. Now, just like realizing that there is a wrong food that perishes, Jesus is saying right here that there is a right food that we should work for that doesn't perish. That's good news. That there actually is something we're made for. There is a satisfaction that can be had that doesn't perish. But notice the food that satisfies is not just for this life, but for the next life, eternity. And for all eternity. The name Son of Man, Jesus uses for himself here, is a common title that every Jew listening to him would have known. It's actually not so subtle claim to divinity. If you want to look it up, it's in the Old Testament book of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Every Jewish person listening to Jesus, when he uses that term, Son of Man, they know that he is claiming divinity, that he's God. It's one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself, especially in John, as the Son of God and the Son of Man. They understand that Jesus is talking about the promised one, the promised one, the Messiah that would come to set them free. Now, they don't have the right idea there, but they know that the Messiah is coming. They just don't know what that means. So this sounds good to them. That's what they want. They want The good bread, he is saying, that that endures to all eternity. But the crowd still thinks he's talking about bread, but a special kind of bread. Now, now we know Jesus is really talking about himself, isn't he? But they don't know that yet. Because we know how the chapter ends. He says, I am the bread of life. They don't know that yet. So when he says, so work... W-O-R-K, work for the food that endures to eternal life. Their ears perk up. On the surface, this can sound very confusing to what you know is the gospel. Because if you're a Christian, if you are born again in Christ Jesus, we know that there is no work that you can do to be saved. But Jesus said, but there's a work you must do. So which is it? Jesus seems to be saying that we can earn our salvation, doesn't it? By working for it. He's really saying, though, there is, there is a work you can do that you can spend your life doing that will give you eternal bread. Now, at this point, we don't know what 
the work is he's referring to. We do because we read ahead, but let's play like we don't. But we know that Jesus promises to give that bread if they work for it. But before Jesus gets to that part, Jesus adds a little statement here in the last part of 27. So put that on hold. Look at what he says here. He says, for on him, God the Father has set his seal. Don't skip over this. Keep that bread of life thing going. But think about this. What does this mean? Well, think about what you put a seal on. Seal a letter. You, a seal is on money. It's on cash, isn't it? Why? The seal shows that the good faith and credit of the government, government of the United States stand behind this dollar, right? Which isn't worth a whole lot right now. <laughs> but what else has a seal? Legal documents. Your marriage license. What I find interesting about the term seal here is that it comes originally from kings uh, who would send out official documents, proclamations, like a new decree or a new law that would come from a guy that would ride into your town and he would unseal a document and say, hear ye, hear ye, the king has commanded. Now he would, how would the people know? Well, the guy that it was from the king, the guy looked the part, but the document had a seal on it, literally a wax document. I mean, a document with wax poured onto it. And while it was hot, the king would take his signet ring that only the king had and mash it into the warm seal, right? Making that document official. It's the same idea here. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. But when God the Father placed his seal on Jesus, well, we could look when we read of his baptize, bab, uh, baptism in Matthew. Uh, flip over to Matthew 3 for just a second. Let's look at it. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This could be the seal right here. But it wasn't just that, was it? It was the spirit of God was on Jesus' entire life. And it was his whole life up to this point. All the miracles that he did was just confirmation. Nicodemus, you'll remember when he meets with Nicodemus in verse 3, I mean chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one else could do these kinds of miracles unless he were from God. In other words, Nicodemus says, look, the seal is on you. Jesus is claiming right here again in chapter 6 to be the Messiah. But let's think about just before this, we have what seems to be a conflict from verse 2. First part of verse 27. That we're not supposed to work and yet we're supposed to work. That Jesus is saying there's work that we must do to receive the spread of life. The people want to know what work should I do to be saved? So look at verse 28. John chapter 6 again. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now this is an excellent question, is it not? Like if you want to be saved, like what do we need to do? Because Jesus had just said, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now that's a clue. 
Now, where does this food come from that will last from eternal life? It will be given to the people that do the work, Jesus said. So what is the work? This is so key. You've got to listen up here. John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Woo! Let's get real basic, real basic. What is Jesus saying here? Let's break it down. Let's break it down. Work of God, God the Father. That's who that's talking about. That you, that be the unbeliever, believe, place faith and trust in, that's what it means to believe, in him, who's him, Jesus, whom he, back to God the Father, has sent. You tracking with what Jesus is saying? Did you catch that? What is the work we must do to receive eternal bread or you could say eternal life? Here it is. The work we do is simply believe in faith that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe in faith That Jesus is the Son of God. Every other religion on the planet, even throughout history, besides Christianity, has one thing in common. Do you know what it is? What must I do to get to heaven, to get to God? Or in other words, what is the list of things that I have to accomplish that I check off for God? Every other religion has that. But Jesus says, no. The work is belief. Or to say it a different way, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But simply believe in faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And even that faith to believe, even that is a gift from God to us. We don't have faith without God. Before we are born again, regenerated and brought to life in Christ Jesus, we know from Ephesians 2 that we are what? Dead spiritually. No ability. So how are we to believe if we're incapable? How can we be brought to life in the spirit if we are dead and we can't do it? How is spiritual life given to us? Well, God gives it to us. If you'll remember all the way back to chapter 1 of John, the apostle John tells us this in John 1 verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Good news. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now think through this carefully with me. What we know from this is that people, A, do receive Jesus and believe in his name, talking about Jesus being the son of God. They believe. We know that, right? That leads to, B, because they believe, Jesus gives them the right to become children of God. 
Because before they believe, they're not children of God. They're enemies of God. Lost. Spiritually dead. But because they believe, Jesus gives them the right to be children of God. Adoption is made possible. Again, how do they believe if they don't have the capability? Well, look at verse 13 again, John chapter 1. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That leads to C. It is only God the Father himself that calls us to life through his Holy Spirit and brings us to new spiritual birth by the work of the Son. Let me say it that again. It is only God the Father himself that calls us to life through his Holy Spirit that brings us a new spiritual birth by the work of the Son. I'll say it one more time because this is critical you understand this. It is only God the Father himself that calls us to life through his Holy Spirit that brings us a new spiritual birth by the work of the Son. Now Jesus is going to explore this a ton more. So we'll, get, we'll leave it here right now. But he's going to explore this the rest of the chapter. Back to this crowd questioning Jesus though. On the surface you might think they understand what he's saying. I think they do understand because this next. I think they don't understand because this next question they ask him. Look at verse 30 back in John 6. So they said to him then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now, I think this is kind of funny because they had just personally experienced this massive feast he had given them out of five loaves and two fish. But don't miss what they're really saying. What I think they're really saying is, yeah, you fed us in the wilderness last night, but what about today? What about tonight? How about tomorrow? If you're, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, then show us that you can always take care of us. Then they give him an example in verse 31. Our fathers ate, in, ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Underline that phrase right there. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. On the surface, this looks like he that they're referring to is God the Father. But the Israelites, they're not saying that. The Jews aren't saying that. We know that because how Jesus responds in the next verse. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Underline that gives. That's important. Present tense. Now remember, when Jesus begins a statement with truly, truly, it's like he's saying, guys, 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 I'm giving you the pure truth right here. I'm going to set you straight, so make sure you understand this. Apparently, the crowd was under the understanding Moses had given them the bread from heaven, the Israelites, when they were in the desert escaping the Egyptian slavery. But Jesus sets them straight. He says, no, 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 no. It was God the Father that sent the bread six days a week, 40 years. 
God had fed millions of people for years and years and years in the wilderness. It wasn't Moses. It was God the Father that was the provider of the bread that saved them and nourished them in the desert until they came into the promised land. Please, whatever you do, don't miss the imagery here. Jesus is showing them, showing us. Look at that last line again of verse 32. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Look at that word gives again. The father gives. Jesus is no longer talking about what God did for the Israelites in the desert as they fled Egyptian slavery and traveled across the wilderness to the promised land. Jesus is saying there is a bread that the Father is giving you right now from heaven. But it's not just bread for a day, but bread that will last eternal. Like Jesus says in verse 33, for the bread of God is he. This is important. Look, the bread is a he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Ooh, this is good. This is so cool. Please grab a hold of this. Not only is God the Father sending bread at that moment, look at how Jesus just referred to the bread. Jesus calls the bread he, not an it, but a he. Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Folks, he's talking about himself, isn't he? I mean, I think that's pretty clear. He is the bread of life that the Father has sent down from heaven to nourish them for eternity. This is clearly, clearly a big claim right here. It's what we've studied before. It's what we will call an absolute truth claim. In other words, the claim he makes is either true or it's false. It can't be kind of true. There's no in between. It's not like saying, well, it's kind of true that I'm the bread of life. The claim Jesus makes here can't be kind of true. It's either true or false. So the crowd answers Jesus, look at verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Again, they don't recognize that Jesus is God yet. It's like going right over their head. These guys are still spiritually dead, incapable of following Jesus at this point. They have not been given faith. Now, we're not sure what they mean other than in the wilderness, God had provided the daily bread for 40 years that the Israelites wanted. So I think what they're saying is this heavenly bread sounds good to us. Give us some of this bread. Maybe it's like that manna. Maybe it's super manna. There's a misconception here. They don't understand. They still think it's about the physical world. So Jesus makes it just incredibly clear. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the claim the entire chapter 6 leads up to. Jesus claims to be the bread of life. It is the first of seven such I am statements that Jesus makes. The expression is looking back to the Old Testament book of Exodus when Moses asked God, what is your name? So I can tell the people, what is your name? 
Let's look at Exodus 3, 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he's saying, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Jesus right here is claiming to be the son of God. The promised one sent from God the Father. How are we to respond to that statement? Now remember, we just read back in verse 29 that Jesus said the work we must do for the gospel. What is it? And the work is to believe in him whom he has sent. Or in other words, there's nothing we can do. That's all there is except believe. Believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and that God the Father has sent him. That's huge because we can all agree that we all have these desires in life. But this is talking about the sum of what we're made for, what we hunger and thirst for, our deepest longings in life, that there is someone, namely God, that can fulfill those desires because he made us. Now this is important because God is the one who made us so only he knows what he can provide that which would fulfill all those God-given desires, namely himself. So the hungry person who comes to Jesus finds his hunger satisfied, his thirst quenched. This does not mean that there is no need for continued dependence on Jesus. We live every day in dependence on him. Well, we've gone deep here, haven't we? We're going to stay in this conversation. But what I want us to do is to end with the point I made earlier. Jesus is using this entire conversation, indeed this entire chapter, to show how he is going to separate his followers, real followers, true followers, from fake followers. What's so amazing to me is that false followers don't know they are false followers. And vice versa, the true followers don't always know why they are following and what that truly means. But Jesus is going to show them and he's going to get to a separation of the types of followers really fast. If you would, just bow your head. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in the hearts and the lives of the people listening right now. God, for true followers, would you show them what that means, how they're supposed to follow, that your Holy Spirit would open that up for them. You would just confirm that salvation in their hearts. And God, for the fake followers that may not know that they're fake, would you prick their heart right now? Would you help them to question what they think is right and wrong and compare it to what they read here. For you Christians, if you would just be praying right now, if you're not a Christian, would you just look to me? Just look for a moment. To become a Christian, it sounds too easy. Now, I don't want you to think that it 
it was easy and the task to accomplish. But hear me out. What's easy for you, what's free for you to believe cost God his son. What happens is that God the Father sent his only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to take on the sins of everyone who would believe. You hearing me? So that when they do believe, they realize, hey, I'm a wretched sinner. Jesus says, no, you're washed clean now. They repent of their sins. They say, I believe. I repent. I, I believe now that you are the son of God. You've been given life. Now, think about this. Every sin ever committed on earth will face the justice of God. Either in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross when he died that he took the sins of all those who would believe on his back, real sin. He paid for sins. All of those for those that would believe, past, present, or future. Or for those that don't believe, they will pay for their own sin in hell for all eternity. You probably caught this today. But when Jesus gives the bread of life, which is himself, he's talking about a great exchange that happens. One, that he takes the sins, the penalty you would have taken if you believe that you would have paid for. He takes them and pays them. And then he gives you his goodness, his righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he sees you as the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that those that would believe right now on you, that you have sent Jesus, they would believe that he is the Son of God, that you would save them. We thank you for that forgiveness. We thank you that you have made us righteous in your Son. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.